Hello everyone and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. My name is Matthew Weldon and I'm your host and I'm here today with my co-host Elise Ketcher. Hi everybody. This week we're going to be diving into the 1980s. Very dynamic and changing period for jewellery and icons Elise. What are we going to talk about this week? The 1980s comes like a bright flash of light into the decades. We see a lot of colored gemstones. We're going to talk about two incredible icons, which of course have changed the face of jewelry. And of course, we're going to give you our jewelry tips. Can't wait to get stuck into this. Let's get going. So the 1980s, we were both born in the 1980s, Matthew. Just about, yeah. You know, but you're definitely still in there. I'm sorry, 1980s. Um, what sticks out into your into your mind about the 1980s as a decade? Because obviously you're from Ireland, I'm from Australia, and, you know, the 80s is still in our living memory. Mm. So, well, not so much yours, but a little bit in mine. Um, and of course, there's overlap between the 80s and 90s, the beginnings anyway. Um, but what sticks out into your mind about what was going on in the 80s in Ireland? Well, I suppose the, the first thing that you said that came to my mind there was uh, Ireland beating England in Stuttgart. But what sticks out for me in the 80s, I mean, in terms of the globally and things, there were two things. Technological advances really came on a lot in the 1980s. Uh, and then, of course, the fall of communism in uh in russia and of course the 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 fall of the berlin wall so i mean when you think about technology in the 80s there was some huge developments that we take for granted today um i mean the the first mobile phone was invented in 1980s which i mean i don't think i think everyone in the world today uh is influenced by that one way or the other absolutely i think when we look at the 1980s, the 1980s really kind of sets us up today for the world as we know it. So it begins to bring into our lives this kind of, it, it's more normalized. So now we know what section of society we are in, whether we're a child, a teenager or an adult. That's very defined in the 1980s um, and that carries on till now. Um, and then we have uh, entertainment, which is completely, you know, made for those specific groups in society. Whereas before it was more like a family, you know, everything was for everyone. Whereas we start to see the split up in the 80s of things specifically for children, for teenagers and for adults. We also, of course, see some really like with the technological advancements, we start to see that kind of coming into the fashion world with things looking very squared. So women are wearing um, shoulder pads. They're also going into the workforce into more prominent positions. So we see this kind of very uh, styled for business women yes. wear. And we'll come back to that when we get to the jewellery section because women coming into the workforce, especially in more senior roles, has a uh, significant impact on, of course, the jewellery and the type of jewellery that's being purchased in terms of it wasn't just men buying jewellery for women. The women were now buying jewellery for themselves, which is, again, a trend that we'd see today more and more. 
yeah, it's interesting we said about the first or the def- definition of the categories. You are a child, you are a teenager, you were, you know, young adults or, or, or so on. And when we get to our, our icons, one of them was what a lot of people would call the first teenage superstar. I think as well at the same at the same time, we we really have this pop culture coming alive in the 1980s. I mean, Madonna huge in the 1980s her way of styling kind of you know takes a whole generation by storm like the way that she looks with her kind of almost gothic but not gothic style with lace and you know she just looks crazy big eyebrows cindy lopper just like her as well. yeah cindy lopper with this really neo neo neon colors where she's wearing like makeup that almost looks like somebody has shot her in the face with like every color from the rainbow. It's very, very different to what we see in the 1960s, 1970s. It's really teased hair, um, hairsprayed fringes that go to the roof for days. I suppose it's more the development of, of that indiv- individuality that we started to see in our last, uh, in the 1970s, we talked about a bit, and of course the 60s, but it becomes all in style and fashion, becomes very individualized and specific to that people. I think those colors, the, the hair that you're talking about, no two styles look exactly the same in the 80s, although they looked, they were similar because of how different they were. They kind of matched in that sense, but no, it looked really the same. <laughs> yeah, no, my dad, I looked at pictures of my my mom and my dad in the 80s last night. And one of the things that I noticed in Australia specifically was that men seem to have the handlebar moustache. I don't know if you ever saw your parents. We're, we're with, missing that from the 80s. That needs to come back. That, that is... <laughs> And you know what? I actually remember growing up and my dad having this handlebar moustache for most of my childhood. You know, it really does like hit a note in me. Like I remember that from my childhood. I also remember the mullet. I remember kids having the mullet. I remember men wearing the mullet hairstyle. And it was a huge thing in in pop culture for men to have this kind of you know, business at the front, party at the back is what were they you, called Were you it. a fan of the mullet? Or, <laughs> or should I say, are you a fan of the mullet? <laughs> I think it's, I think if you can pull it off, you could pull it off good. But if you can't pull it off, it's a no, no. And I think it looks better on men than it does on women. My dad actually had a peroxide blonde mullet. Um, which... Was he in that Netflix thing, Tiger King? Or... <laughs> well, Ronald Reagan has come to power in the US. Uh, was he a good president or a bad president? Uh, I think he was quite, he was very a popular president anyway. In the UK, Thatcher was in power for part now, of the 80s. she was a style icon, I have to say. Hairspray to the, you know, her hair well, was Well, her, her hair bouffant. was definitely iconic. <laughs> bouffant, indeed, yeah. She also used to wear the pussy bow shirt, which became very um, popular during the 1980s as well. The matching uh, suit as well, skirt suit, was very Thatcher. And, of course, the Falklands War, we can't forget about either, which was um, something that happened during the the Iron Lady as what she was she was known as during yeah. her reign 
In Russia, we had Mikhail Gorbachev in power with his policies of glasnost and perestroika, which are openness and restructuring. So he was really trying to make waves in the in the Communist Party there, uh, decentralizing power and making um, making a more open economy and certain limited forms of capitalism in Russia. I always get the pronunciation of Siamen Square or Tiananmen. Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. I always get that wrong. But during the 1980s, the massacre happens um, in China. And I think for the first time, like some of these lockdown countries where we don't hear or know a lot about what's going on, um, on the inside of the countries, they start to kind of leak out and we find out through mass media kind of what's going on uh, in these countries. And I think that has a lot to do with um, why people view communism in a certain way, like not in a, a, in a good light because they link them to these kinds of events that are taking place segregation the berlin wall what's happening in china and they kind of link it together with those with that kind of oppression i guess and that's why why i personally think and that's just my opinion why uh, a lot of it comes undone during the 1980s the chernobyl disaster happened in 1986 that was the first major nuclear disaster it was a town in the ukraine and the there was a problem with the reactor and there was a obviously a nuclear meltdown they actually averted a bigger there was a lot of people who died trying to solve the problem before the reactor had a complete meltdown that actually limited the scale of the disaster and they uh, they unfortunately passed away very quickly from radiation poisoning after it but even today you can't visit chernobyl Although they, they say that the wildlife there is fantastic. All the trees and natural animals, the wolves, the bears have repopulated the area. Uh, so the, the takeaway is that mankind is worse for the environment than a nuclear disaster. <laughs> so, Yeah, no, I, I remember, I obviously don't remember it happening, but I remember years down the line, the effects from the Chernobyl case with the children who'd been left orphaned and a lot of them with disabilities, all from this particular disaster. And I think it made a lot of people more aware of what we do to the environment. And I think during the 1980s as well was the first time we start to hear the actual term global warming. So we start to become a lot more aware of our environmental footprint in the 1980s, but we don't actually do a lot about it. We realize that, you know, everything that we do on this planet has an effect on the environment, but do we change our ways? You're right. It's became really identified in the 80s. Like scientists knew about global warming actually well in advance of the 80s, but it became kind of widespread knowledge that, you know, all this stuff we're doing, yeah, not good for the planet. But yeah, the political will to act on it, I think is only really in the last few years. It seems to have really become to the fore. But Another cool thing that happened was Live Aid. What was your favorite part of Live Aid, Elise? My favorite part of Live Aid, hands down, is Queen's performance. Like Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger, Freddy Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Freddie Mercury is 
like electric in his performance in Live Aid. And I mean, you still see today uh, at Halloween, you'll still see people walking around and will dress up as uh, Freddy, not as Freddy Krueger, but as Freddie Mercury during Live Aid. Like you, it's so iconic. His like white or his acid wash jeans, his studded belt and his like white singlet top is so iconic for the 1980s and Live Aid. And obviously, if you've if you've ever seen the movie about his life, um, like dramatized, obviously, it kind of gets to a pinnacle at Live Aid where he performs. Now, during his performance at this time, he had already um, contracted the HIV virus, um, and he ends up dying of AIDS, but. I never got to obviously see him perform in real life, but we have a, a girl who works here with us and her name's Sarah. And we've actually spoken about this and she actually got to see Queen live. And she said to me, like when he used to come out on stage, he was like when she saw him come out on stage and he performed, it was like going into another world. And she said she's seen a lot of really iconic people perform, but Queen and Freddie Mercury was one of the the greatest. Jewelry from the 1980s. Now, with the fashions that we've seen, obviously the jewelry is going to complement the fashions. So we touched a little bit on that, and then Matthew reined me in because we're going to discuss a lot more about the businesswoman or the business attire in this section. Yeah, and this is very important for the style of jewellery. Prior to the 80s, it was typically men buying jewellery for women, uh, in terms of fine jewellery anyway. And But in the 80s, that changed. As Elise mentioned previously, the women were working at higher levels in companies and entering the workforce and progressing along careers. And so we're self-buying, this whole concept of a self-buy piece of jewellery. 1980s fine jewellery, there was a lot of changes in terms of diamond cutting. I'm going to talk about diamonds for a second. Now, their coloured stones were very popular in the 80s as well. Driven by my icon, of course. But I like that you're mentioning diamonds because diamonds were at the highest they'd ever been by the time we hit the 80s. And it makes diamonds almost, the larger stones anyway, especially almost unachievable for your everyday, um, your everyday couple. Uh, I know with my, with my parents, my parents' engagement ring was a very, very small sapphire in a rub over setting with two small diamonds on either side. Very, very high, high setting, but very small stones. Now, during the 1980s, we see a lot more of that. We see the diamonds, instead of having like a large central stone, we start to see parve settings. We start to see studded clusters of diamonds instead of very large diamonds. So at the start of the 80s, the prices for diamonds, as you said, were really high, especially for the big ones, like unobtainably high for 
most people. But there was also a lot of fluctuation in the prices. And then to stabilize that fluctuation, De Beers, who controlled a lot of the diamond mines at that stage, held back a lot of the bigger material. That kind of stabilized the price, but it kept them quite strong. So what happened then is exactly these pave settings. And pave settings uh, are like rings where the diamonds are set into it and kind of they're if you rubbed your finger across the top of it the diamonds would be flush into the setting and um, but because a lot of the larger material wasn't available a lot more smaller diamonds came onto the market and it's probably the first decade as well that De Beers they controlled a lot of the bigger stones but there was diamonds starting to flow in from Russia starting to flow in from Australia mm-hmm. 1970s is the first time that we um, the Argyle mine produces diamonds. Ah, yeah, but they mainly were colored stones. They were, but yeah. they had smaller melee stones that were of like darker kind of yellows and browns. Yes. Which then they later in the 80s took. This is the breakup kind of, of what happens in De Beers is De Beers loses um, in the 80s. They start to lose full control and world dominance over diamonds. So by the time of the end of the 80s, we start to see places like the Argyle mine actually taking charge over their own material instead of taking them to the diamond bourses that are basically controlled by De Beers. And Canada, Russia, these are flown into it, but particularly Canadian and Russian stuff of the 80s, they were only producing small diamonds. And just to give people an insight to how the, the diamond market would have worked up until then in the 80s, uh, well, definitely kind of 60s, 70s, 80s, there was what they called site holders. And these site holders, they had, uh, they could liaise with De Beer and they could offer to buy or De Beer would offer them to purchase packets par- or parcels of diamonds. If you weren't a site holder, you couldn't buy these stones. And De Beers were completely controlling that particular part of it. But when other suppliers, like the Argonne Mine, took control of it, when other suppliers started coming in, the market started to become freer in flow, let's say. Yeah, exactly. So um, that was very significant. But what that meant was these smaller crystals, so you get Pavi set, stones set with lots and lots of diamonds, but smaller stones. So um, I won't get into my trade tip, which is related to that now in a, in a second, but also what you see in the 80s and what I love about 1980s jewellery is the the people started to really focus on the cut of diamonds and the shape of diamonds so prior to that you will see of course emerald cuts pear shapes um rounds of course but in the 80s a lot of new shapes come into the market uh, 1984 the princess cut uh came into it so obviously diana became uh princess in 1981 i believe yes the beginning so, of the 80s she became a princess the princess cut followed four years later which was a the princess cut is a square shaped diamond it is basically a round brilliant cut but made square so quite similar the pavilion is very similar um the pavilion is the bottom part of the stone what you'll also see is you get uh, triangular shaped diamonds in the 80s start to be cut. So trillion cuts are tr- uh, trillion or trillion, depending on what you want to call it. So even they're slightly different shapes. But. So they really start to be cut in the 1970s, but they come really onto the market in the 1980s where people are really kind of embracing these, you know, geometric shapes, I would say. Um, and that's because it really does reflect the fashions of the time. I'm sure you can remember, you know, the shirts that people are now again re-wearing that have like the geometric patterns 
on, Great shirts. on them. Love them. Um, but you see a lot of like what they call the hipsters today wearing like the 80s geometric pattern shirts um, with really vibrant colors. And that is kind of reflected in the jewelry as well. We also see during the 1980s um, a lot of colored gemstones come into the market, especially for engagement rings. So in the 19, um, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, um, diamonds really would have been, and 70s, diamonds really would have been the chosen stone for those eras for engagement rings. But we start to see colored gemstones come out in full force in the 1980s. Of course, we know Princess Diana has a sapphire. Um, uh, when Prince Andrew gets married to Fergie, she has a ruby. Pap- oh, yeah. She has a ruby. Uh, Eugenie now has a pad paracha. Yeah. Um, but it's these colored gemstones that kind of like broaden everybody's horizons in terms of the gem world and people then start to become more clued on about gemstones in particular um and crystal formations because we know during the 1980s as well is a time when people start to use crystals for meditation and things like that as well and then we start to see Uh, what is called semi-precious stones used in jewelry as well, because the diamond market is so um, highly inflated. We start to see more of the in price. I mean, highly inflated in price. Um, We start to see more of the semi-precious stones taking the front stage. So things like malachite that we perhaps wouldn't have seen a lot in jewelry. We would see malachite in jewelry and we would see, um, Rhoda Crow's Night in jewellery. We'd see all of these kind of very semi-precious stones in um, in large pieces. Even geodes we'd see on necklaces and things like that. Um, and then, of course, the business attire for women was pearls. Now, pearls that were either very, very long, tied in a knot to the front, pearl necklaces... Or, of course, the Marbe pearls, which you see in, which is a type of blister pearl, which was originally created in China, where they used a little bit of uh, of grit to put on the inside of the shell and it would create kind of like a half pearl um, or a disc. Or it's a, a quicker sphere. process to make it, I suppose. And, yeah, pearls became a huge factor in the 1980s. Um, I think the development of how pearls were made became really efficient and you got a huge quantity of freshwater pearls coming from China especially. And Previously, they would have almost exclusively been saltwater pearls. Cultured, granted, but uh, saltwater pearls. But now, yeah, you'll see a lot of 1980s stuff set with freshwater pearls. Yeah, and the Mabe pearl is actually like almost like a, a pearl that looks like it's cut in half. Yes. So you might have seen it in your mother's collection. I know that I did. Um, and it was a, like this kind of very large half pearl, which usually had like a gold rim of a design around it. Now, it could have been a rope twist. It could have been had like um, at the cross sections, it could have had crosses or it could have had just a texturized gold around it. But those particular earrings 
were some of the, what I remember most about the eighties when you thought of business attire, you think very slicked back hair, smoky eye makeup, maybe a red lip and those Marbe pearl earrings. Something that I, you would see a lot uh, in the shop here when people are selling us jewelry. Um, a lot of eighties are kind of two tone. I, I, I find the, you'd have kind of platinum head and then a, a gold shanker, uh, but are in some way the two tones of gold used in the 80s jewellery. But you would see also other metals started to come in in the 1980s. So things like titanium would have been used. They actually tried to create a new gold standard, which was 99% gold, 1% titanium. So gold, if you have pure gold for jewellery, it's quite soft. It has to be very chunky or else it, it mightn't hold its form. So if you mix in 1% of titanium, uh, you can get, uh, titanium is obviously extremely hard. I mean, it was made to for the aeronautical or the space industry. So you mix in a little bit of titanium with the gold, you get a, a more workable um, metal, but it's also pure enough at 99% that the Asian market would love it. Uh, and the European market has a very high standard or high purity of gold required. And that's something you see in the 80s as well, this, this high carat um, gold jewellery. Also, one thing that I really want to mention about the 1980s is the 1980s is kind of where we start to see the antique jewelry trade really come into force. So people start to reimagine what has been kind of released in the past in terms of trends and make it their own in the 1980s. And of course, my icon has a, a lot to do with that. And I will speak about that when we get I to her. For, I'm looking forward to listening to your icon. I, I know yeah. it's really hard to kind yeah. of like speak about the 80s and jewelry mm. and not speak about but, her through the whole thing till the end. It's really quite difficult. When you think of 1980s is now 100 years after 1880. So a lot of that Victorian jewelry is now antique. Whereas in the 50s and the 40s, it was jewelry just was, you know 60 or 70 years ago probably didn't quite wasn't quite old enough to maybe have that cash but now in the 80s the victorian stuff is 100 years old the edwardian jewelry is almost 100 years old it's like today the yeah. 60s and 70s jewelry wasn't really seen as being that old 15 20 years ago but now it's like oh hold on this is the retro period so it's the exact same thing happened and actually the, each episode that we talk about you can see there's cyclical things that happen in the jewelry market and i love that you bring up the antiques trade there yeah it was a roaring 10 antique jewelry in the 80s was massively popular and it's just continued ever since then to, to grow um because it, and it's still quite a niche area of the jewelry market compared to new jewelry in the 1980s wallace simpson passes away my icon that i chose um a few episodes back now and her jewelry comes up for auction um during the 1980s and she becomes like her her particular the brooch, brooch the flamingo brooch oh. goes up for auction in the 1980s and this kind of you know she was an icon and so it kind of spurs people's interest in the jewels of the past and the provenance of these pieces. So like, this is where it kind of begins. This is where our, not only our birth story begins, but this is where like our fascination with things of the past, the stories of the past and the jewels of the past, how they all collide and how 
each of these pieces really reflect historical situations. Yeah, and it wasn't just uh, antique jewellery. Obviously, antique jewellery was gaining momentum then, but it was also the new jewellery houses were recreating antique pieces yes. into jewels. You look at Bul- Bulgari with their yeah, coin, the coin, collection. coin collection. Like, uh, and coin jewellery at the moment is starting to come back into, really into vogue again. But it, it's, um, they're taking these ancient coins, sometimes they're Roman, and they were creating them into like heavy necklaces. Um, of course, gold was very expensive in the 1980s. So, well, not with Bulgari pieces, but with more general jewellery, you'll find that gold tends to be hollow. That's just a little a little trade tip in advance of our trade tip section. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but that, that particular, you know, the coin jewellery, especially those that ha- housed ancient coins, um, Elizabeth Taylor was known as wearing some of that Bulgari um, coin jewellery as well. And... I love coin jewelry personally. Like I have a few pieces of coin jewelry in my personal collection. Um, I have an ancient Roman coin, and I have a um, and I have a uh, a Krugerrand that I wear usually daily. But it's such a versatile. Well, it's such a go to piece of jewelry that you can put on, and you don't have to worry about settings or anything like that. And you can wear it so all durable. the time. Yeah. So it you know, it becomes your really go-to piece. And I'm sure uh, with the with the way that things were in the 80s, everybody's living kind of a hustling, bustling life. Jewelry at that time really had to be easy to wear and easy to complement a working lifestyle. Trade tips, Elise. I always look forward to hearing your trade tip um, for all the different uh periods and decades that we've looked at the 1980s though it's it's relatively uh, it's in within both of our living lives as you've mentioned there was actually quite a lot of things that came to my mind thinking about 1980s jewelry but i'll ask you first what was your trade tip if you're saying to people looking at 1980s jewelry my biggest trade tip for And I know I know you kind of hesitate there because there's a few you could say here, isn't there? <laughs> I know, but I the really I'm I, I tried to make the trade tips actually really useful for for people who want to buy jewelry. My my biggest trade tip of the 1980s is that women tended to wear a mixture of both costume jewelry with very very high-end pieces and they're very 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 good fakes um and it can be very difficult to determine what is a costume piece and what is actually a the real mccoy in particular we we took a big section about talking about pearl earrings pearls for the 80s are a huge one and there is different types of pearls that are available. There's cultured, there's natural, there's river pearls, there's freshwater pearls, there's blister pearls. And of course, there is a huge variety of fake pearls. Now, I know we've done a pearl episode. If you really are interested in buying pearls, specifically Marbe pearls from the 1980s, I would suggest listening to our pearl 
podcast in the Gemstone series. But the one tip that I can give you in pearls is to, especially if you're looking at ones that go, um, that are a necklace, is to look at the drill hole of the pearl. Now, in the 1980s, we see a lot of um, strings of fake pearls. If you've got a necklace that is knotted in between each of the pearls, that's a good sign because it usually means that they're very, they're valuable pearls. Someone took the time to actually knot each piece. Exactly. So that's a good sign. And then after that, I would look at the drill hole. And usually when when you look at the drill hole, you can either see if it's an imitation pearl, you can see chips of the the paint or the surrounding material coming away from the drill hole and that will kind of, and you'll be able to see kind of like the plastic from underneath and that will automatically tell you that you're looking at imitation pearls and then if you look closer and you can see the drill hole sometimes you can actually see the matrix or the the inner the, so if you're looking the at the culture, the outside pearl, and the inner part, yes, yeah. you yeah. can see the you can see the impregnated disc that goes inside a cultured pearl. If you look through the drill hole, sometimes you can see where it turns from nacre into shell. And if it's a na- if it's a natural pearl, you can see usually nothing. It and just the, the material stays the same stays through that drill same. hole. So that is, I know mm. that's a really long winded trade tip, and sometimes it can be difficult to use that. But the number one one is the imitation one. So if you look at the if you look at the pearl necklace, it doesn't have any knots, and at the drill hole, it has little chips of the actual um, paint or surround coming off. Then you know that it's an imitation. Funny, it's the type of thing I think that if you had. Uh, an example in front of you you could show someone straight away and be this is what to look for this is not not to look for but when you try to verbalize it obviously you have to you have to i think it has to be long-winded to explain the the different pieces no i think that's a great trade tip um for looking at pearls and uh, particularly from the 80s um and again what you mentioned there imitation pearls you know i i there's i was going to talk my trade tip which is kind of, well there was one i was going to have one that was sort of related that was because antique jewelry became so valuable in the 80s. Um, as you mentioned, the auction of Wallace Simpson's jewelry really uh, encouraged a lot of interest. You know, in antique jewelry, we call the 80s the, the repro era. Modern jewelers made jewelry that looked exactly like antique jewelry. And you have to be very savvy to be able to tell the difference. And it's important because a 1980s reproduction piece of jewelry is not nearly as valuable as an original Edwardian or a Victorian piece. And I suppose one of our strengths, I think, is that we are very good at identifying the reproduction to the old pieces, if I do say so myself. But the it is really, really important. And it's probably the hardest thing. It probably took me the longest time in the trade to spot the, the reproductions because they can be really good. And in a way, if you're happy not actually having an antique the rings can be quite nice. Like a lot of them are handmade. I think a lot of them come from Argentina. Um, I've been at trade shows and I've seen these Argentinian makers and they, they do make them by hand, but they have a certain, they always have a certain style and a certain pattern and it's not quite like, they just don't have the magic, the old ones, I think. They, they almost look too crisp. Now, yes. the it's not that you want a rounded edge or that you want it to not look crisp, but there's something about 
like a very dense piece of metal that's been filed very finely to look like to into an antique piece of jewelry where versus using you know the techniques that we have today to try and imitate that look it just doesn't it it's just a, doesn't cut they, it. they can be good imitations but they're not the the real mccoy but um actually that wasn't my trade tip because that's more just uh <laughs> that has to be your trade tip well it will say it's partly but it's uh it's actually a fascinating uh industry that but it's not what i'm gonna say the, the one i was gonna say is because that's more about generally spotting reproduction antique jewelry it just happened to happen in the 80s it's not really uh 1980s jewelry what i was gonna say about 1980s jewelry is that because that we talked about the supply of diamonds was restricted you have a lot of smaller stones a lot of the finest 1980s jewelry is either set with color stones or with lots of little stones and i remember just looking at a ring that i saw um a 1980s yellow gold ring set with kind of crisscrossing rows of small baguette diamonds and it was incredible but none of those stones were bigger than 0.1 of a carat but the sum total of it was fantastic so uh just i suppose a tip would be don't be deterred when you're looking at 1980s jewelry if it doesn't have a single large diamond in it often some of the finest typical 80s jewelry is set with multiple small pave set round baguette or unusual cut diamonds hi everyone elise here i just wanted to take a moment to let you know about our gem pursuit newsletter with each new podcast episode we're going to start sending out some supplementary podcast material just to point you in the direction of any interesting items that we may have discussed on the show if this sounds like something that you're interested in, simply go to our website, courtville.ie, scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and enter in your email address. And that's it. Now back to the episode. So with our icons. Everybody knows mine. Everyone knows Elisa's, but I think she had to be, uh, she had to be mentioned. I mean, you couldn't talk about 1980s in a jewelry podcast and not have Princess Diana as, a, exactly. as an icon. Exactly. But, I'm going to pick a slightly different one purely because, as we mentioned in our in our intro uh, or in our setting the scene part of the podcast, the 1980s was one of the first decades where everyone was kind of sat at you were either a, a kid or a teenager or an adult or so on. Um, but the lady that I picked was one of the first teen icons in history. If you were to equate her to someone today, it'd be something like, you know, Justin Bieber. She was the Justin Bieber of the 80s. And I am, of course, talking about Brooke Shields, who a lot of people will know. She's still she's still acting at the moment. She's still in Law & Order Specials Victim Unit. She was spotted when she was about 11. So her career started when she was about 11 years old, which is really quite incredible. Very but, young. But her, yeah, really young. Um, but she'd be most, one of her most well-known films was a film called Blue Lagoon. And that was just at the start of the 1980s. I remember watching Blue Lagoon, like, obviously years and years later. Very scandalous story. Mm. Especially for them, because it was still, still quite restricted, you know. And she was brought up a Catholic as well, you know. So, But um, she was also married to Chris Henchy, uh, they met in 1999 and her engagement ring was a cushion cut diamond that was set with a, a halo of diamonds around it and diamonds down the shoulder. And that's kind of incorporating some of the 1980s style and also an antique stone, which was pretty cool. Um, but Brooke has reinvented herself in a different field altogether. Brooke Shields now 
believe it or not. And in addition to being an actress, recently started her own line of jewellery, which incorporated a lot of gemstones that actually were popular in the 80s. Uh, Now, I don't know if she knowingly did this. She's going back to her heyday. Yeah, but I think it's purely by osmosis rather than design. But anyway, she's gone into collaboration with a jewellery designer called Robert Prokop. Um, And what I really like about this collection is that, uh, as she says, the genesis of the collection was the cabochon. And cabochon stones, for anyone who's not sure, are stones that are unfaceted. So they are rounded. They can be oval shaped or sugar loaf in shape, but they'll be polished. So they won't have... Um, they won't have little kites and triangular shaped facets that a that a, a brilliant cut stone would have. They won't be step cut like an emerald cut, but they'll just be rounded. And this really is the if you if anyone who wants to look up Brooke Shields jewelry collection, you'll see a lot of them are set with they're set with amethyst. They're set with sugar loaf white jade. Uh, they're set with cabochon cut amethysts. Um, so they're like the semi-precious stones that would have been used in 1980s jewelry as well. And the style of them is also very typical of 1980s. So it's like she's gone back to her heyday to release uh, a line of jewellery. And I think that, and I think that's pretty cool. Those eyebrows, no one can forget those eyebrows from the 1980s. But um, my icon kind of takes the cake for the 1980s, I think. Um, Princess Diana and I, you know, there's so much that we can, there's so much that we can talk about Princess Diana and she had a very short life and, you know, most of us know all of the ins and outs of her life as she was known as being the most photographed woman in the world. But in the 1980s is where we kind of start to see her almost thrown into the spotlight at a very, very young, tender age. Um, and her wedding is kind of like the pinnacle of what happens in the beginning of the 1980s. Um, on the 29th of July, 1981, she gets married to Prince Charles, who at the time is considered the most eligible bachelor in the whole world. Like everybody's trying to get a piece of Prince Charles. Why? I don't know, but they are and prince well it's probably because he's a prince (laughs) yeah (laughs) but anyway she is the one who kind of like tames this playboy prince so to say now let's have a little let's have a little bit of fun with this because i don't want to kind of go over all the ins and outs of the marriage everybody knows really what happens but matthew can you guess how many people watched this royal wedding in 1981. Now, remember, we're talking about not only those in England, we're talking about people in the Commonwealth. Don't you be looking this up, Matthew. Give, you, I don't want you to be looking it up. I want you to just have a guess. Have a guess. Uh, I think they mentioned it in The Crown, how many people watched it. Uh, for some strange reason, the number 400 million is in my mind. Oh, that's a good guess, but it was estimated that 750 million people around the world watched the wedding. Incredible for the royal family. Incredible because the penetration rates of TVs around the world wouldn't have been as high as they are today. And also the fact that the world population was lower. So, And we also have to remember that people were watching it on TV and then the amount of crowds that actually went and watched it 
the procession through the streets in the UK was incredible. So the, you know, the popularity for the royal family from this engagement and this wedding really made sure that through the 80s and 90s, the royal family was going to stay completely intact. Um, And she is one of the main reasons behind this. Now, at her wedding, she doesn't wear a lot of jewelry. She wears a pair of diamond earrings that were her mother's and she wears the Spencer tiara. Now, it was, again, highly televised, this Spencer tiara, and it became an iconic piece of jewelry that was always attached to her. However, the Spencer tiara actually belongs to the Spencer family. And it's a family tiara that gets worn by any member of the family who gets married. So, of course, Princess Diana's two sisters wore um, the tiara for their own weddings, which were before her wedding. And we have seen it on a few of her nieces since she has passed away. Um, So it is still out there and it does still get worn. But I don't want to talk about her engagement ring because if you want to to listen about her engagement ring, (laughs) you can go to our Sapphire podcast as well, which is also in one of our In the Gemstone series. Um, We talk about it. But I want to talk about a piece of wedding jewelry that she was actually given. Now, Princess Diana was kind of another reason behind why such an interest in antique and vintage jewelry came to the forefront in the 80s as well, because we have this really um, fresh perspective, this this teenager who comes into the royal family at age 19 and she has access to the royal jewels and she wears them in a way that is so contemporary and so right for the times like she wears quintessential 80s fashion usually trying to bring to the forefront fashion houses that actually haven't had a lot of airplay so people who are quite unknown and obscure she kind of goes in and tries to help them out the Emmanuels made her wedding dress and they were not quite well-known fashion designers during this time uh, English fashion designers and she wears their dress and they kind of like go you know go crazy people are like amazed by her dress it becomes again one of these the 1980s there's so many reproductions of this wedding dress one of my aunties wore a dress that was a reproduction of princess diana's wedding dress so you know it had a huge effect on fashion but she would take antique jewelry and she would make it 80s so she would make it relevant for the times and you know, this inspired the generation to look back through their parents' jewels and actually wear them in a different way that made them fashionable again. That's what I really loved about Princess Diana. That just reminds me of uh, Kate Middleton in a way. She, I mean, the classic ones where she's wearing, you know, Primark or Penny's clothes with a piece of jewellery from the Royal Jewellery Collection. It, It just gives them a fresh look. I remember she had a, a sapphire and diamond bracelet that she'd wear as a choker and a headband well that's what i was actually Uh, going to get onto that was the piece of jewelry that i was going to talk about so 
especially for this particular piece, she, during her wedding, she was actually gifted um, the suite that Matthew's talking about by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's described as being made by Asprey and it consisted of an enormous Burmese sapphire pendant that was set in a jagged kind of sunray fringe um, that had baguette diamonds kind of hanging around it. Then she had a matching pair of earrings and a two row bracelet of brilliant cut diamonds with a smallest um, version of the sapphire pendant as a centerpiece. Um, and that kind of flipped up and it was a wristwatch. Now the watch she had changed into a choker and she wore that as a choker and she also wore it as a headband. And there's one particular photo of her where she's wearing this kind of dark, dark blue um, dress and it has sequins all at the top of the dress and she's wearing shoulder pads with it and she's got a double cl uh, cluster sapphire earrings hanging from her ears her signature hairstyle and this um headband across the top of her head she looks like an 80s princess she makes the 80s princess relevant and that's truly what an icon is an icon is taking the pieces and the knowledge that you have from the past and making it relevant today. And that is Diana. Oh, I'd get all of these. I'd get every single one of these. Okay. Let's hopeful Matthew does. So just Elise thinks she's gonna, she's got the, e I've got the easy draw this week, but of course uh, they're only easy if you know the answers. So uh, why don't you go first then Elise, if there's, and we'll, we'll see how they, how they stack up. So the scores are, I think I am one ahead, 11-10 if I'm not mistaken. So it's neck and neck. And of course there is only one more episode left after this week. Uh, so we're getting down to the wire. So this could this could make it unobtainable for Elise or it could make it a neck and neck finish. So Elise, do you want to go first? Okay. Matthew, 1980s edition. Question one. Name the movie released in 1986. Great year. Starring <laughs> Matthew, Matthew Broderick as a high school slacker who skips school for the day in Chicago. And if you, if you, what are you looking at this? Time? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. I was like, you have to know that one. I thought Matthew Braddock was your man in Friends though for a second there actually. Question two. Can you name the 1980s band who had hits with Girls on Film, Rio and Hungry Like the Wolf? You can so. I can't, I don't know who they are. 1980s band. Can you name? Okay, so it's got to be a famous 1980s band. Obviously, it's got to be... I wish you could see my eyeballs, like, popping out of my head. Girls on film. Girls on film. Um, also, this could be another I'm Pride and Prejudice. I'm hungry like the wolf. You get the Hold time. on, can you just sing the last one maybe? That might help. That... <laughs> I just did. Did you? Oh. Um, sorry, is, what was the question like again? The world. Huh? 
I don't know that yeah, one. Yeah, no, we're missing one. You didn't sing. Yeah. I don't know that one. Uh, Her name is Leo and she's Oh, yeah, I know that one. Oh, I know that song. No, actually. no, you have Her to. Her name sing. is Rio. Just choose a band, she... please. Yeah. Oh, it's a typical 1980s. Oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to be embarrassing. Oh, God. Um, I can't think of any 1980s band. Hold on. Boy George? <laughs> uh, no, and that would have, would have been Culture Club. But um, <laughs> it is Duran Duran. Ah, so good they named them twice. Uh, question <laughs> three. Who wrote the 1982 children's book, The B.F.? Roldal. Yes. You can't forget that one. All right. So we all read that. All right, catcher. First question. Name the movie released in 1985 about five teenagers from different high school cliques. Who spent a Saturday in detention the with their club. authoritarian assistant principal? <laughs> well done. Yeah, that's correct. Can you name the 1980s artist? I mean, I can't even read this question out. This is this is such a give me. So was Duran Duran, to be honest. No, 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 no. This is a give me. This is a give me. Name the artist who sang "Purple Rain" when doves cry and raspberry beret. The oh, artist, that's a toughie. The, the artist formerly known as Prince, which he's now known as a symbol, but he's also passed away. Do I get that point? <laughs> of course you got the point. <laughs> you might not get this one though. Whose 1988 book, The Satanic Verses, led to several failed attempts on his life? I think this is a fair question. No, it's <laughs> not. You got BFG. That's a gimme, gimme, gimme. Prince, come on. Anyway, look, I'll read it again. Who's 1988 book? So you were a young adult at this stage. The Satanic Verses <laughs> led to several failed attempts on his life. His first name sounds like a fish. I don't know. Salman Rushdie. I have never heard that name in my life. Yeah, good out, good out, Salman. So we're that's necking. That's the same. No, that's it's two not. each. That was two each. That's two each, but it still remains you ahead one. So, but that's I think perfect going into the last episode because that'll leave a, a good competition. And I think maybe we might do we'll do five questions in the last episode, Ross. We'll, we'll have a we'll have a gem pursuit special in the last episode. Five questions. You're but going I, down, Matthew. Well, you're going down. Oh, I'm shaking in my boots, folks. We'll we'll wrap it up there. I hope you enjoyed the 1980s. Uh, moving on next week we are doing modern times so 1990s until present day uh, don't forget we are sending out our newsletters uh, every monday morning so make sure to subscribe to that on our website courtville.ie to get some insights to the podcast some pieces that we are talking about and information about the icons as well so i'd like to thank my co-host elise catcher for today i'd like to thank our producer ross he gave a thumbs up and look forward to talking to you all again soon. All the best.